0: Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name's James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week, I have an incredibly successful health tech entrepreneur. His name is Mir Imran, and he's had over 20 medical device companies since the 1980s. He's got over 400 patents, and he's developed some pretty cool medical devices. So one of which was the world's first ICD, so Implantable Cardiac Defibrillator, Another one was the DRG stimulator, so a dorsal root ganglion stimulator, something which I saw at an event by Abbott only the other week, and it turns out that Miriam Rant invented it and sold it to that company. The BIS monitor is another one of his, so an anesthetic device that measures the depth of anesthesia. Um, and his latest company is is developing something called the rani pill which i'll let him explain in uh, a lot more detail and a lot better than i would on here but a really interesting story to, to listen out for he, he thought of the idea shelved it and then he had a particular house moment if you watch dr house where he was having a spicy indian dinner and all of a sudden cracked how he could actually invent this thing and, and get it to work really awesome story um and he's an awesome guy you know he's despite being so incredibly successful he's also a very humble man he's got a lovely kind of quiet nature and he just sort of emanates this confidence and competence and real passion for what he does um, which is essentially solve problems with to a degree that i've never really heard before he's got this incredible background in electrical engineering biomedical engineering and he's been to medical school so as much of us in medicine look at problems and and try and fantasize about ways to solve them he actually can so he actually can think how things can work from an engineering perspective and then he goes and builds them builds companies around them and then sells them to much bigger companies um and he's done that at an incredible level to the point where he now has a research institute which pumps out even more devices he's got a venture fund that sits at the end of that research institute and, and funds those devices to to become reality and, and commercialized it's, it was an incredible podcast to do. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I'm sure you would be far too gripped on the podcast to notice this, but we do get a couple of emails going through it. So it's the podcast. It's not your phone. Don't worry. Enjoy.
1: Well, good morning, James. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, well, you know, I'm going to take you back to my childhood, uh, starting in, in India in the uh, 60s, early 60s, uh, uh, very simple time from a technological standpoint. And, and, uh, but my curiosity was, uh, probably as strong as it is today. And I would, uh, I was actually encouraged by my mother to, uh, uh break things apart and, and, uh, learn how everything worked. And, um, uh, that was uh, the beginning of my, my journey. Uh, by the time I came to the US and went to engineering school uh, and uh, uh, started uh, getting into medical stuff, uh, actually in my uh, undergraduate, during my undergraduate uh, uh, experience, uh, I did a, a small summer job uh, to develop a communication aid for um, a little quadriplegic cerebral palsy girl. And uh, uh, that's what launched me into my uh, medical career. And in, 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 uh, I started to focus on, uh, on those things. Went to medical school. For a period of time, and and decided uh, uh, clinical practice was not for me. And uh, uh, I, you know, from childhood, I was also interested in um, commercializing things. I used to build things and sell them as a child, so <laughs> it was uh, natural for me to get into business. And so my first business was when I was an undergraduate student at Rutgers. Um, uh, to do a security system and that company didn't work. This is, by the way, I was a full-time student there. I mm. uh, did not have enough capital to uh, to put in. And then a second company also failed while I was in grad school. And uh, then the, the first medical company I did was uh, uh, after medical school uh, in collaboration with a, uh, really wonderful uh, cardiologist, uh, brilliant guy from uh, Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. And um, that was the, the development of the first implantable defibrillator. Um, it, it was an amazing experience uh, for a young young man. And uh, the company was acquired by uh, Eli Lilly, which is a large pharma company. And uh, uh after that I moved to California and have been building companies ever since. I didn't know
0: the, the bit about the cerebral palsy school, um, your summer job. I mean, that that's really interesting. So that you know, that's a point at which your motivation to really solve health problems really started.
1: That that's correct. You know, I, I saw a little on the bulletin board a little um uh, sign or, or a paper saying, you know, we're looking for for a, someone to help us with uh, uh, developing communication aids for CP children, so uh, I I went there and uh, uh, there was I met the speech therapy group and they said they're working with a young girl seven years old and she is very severe quadriplegic and we haven't figured out how to to uh, we don't have any technology to communicate with her. Wow. And uh, so I worked with her. I figured out that she had uh, one muscle group that she could uh, voluntarily move and on, around her neck. And so I designed a sensor to interface to her neck and um, constructed a um, communication system where she could use her movement of her neck to uh, point to uh, uh, different picture phrases um and um uh, that was uh, that that experience was so positive for me you know the the mm-hmm. um the jenny was thrilled to be able to ha- do something manipulate her environment and actually communicate and it really transformed my view of uh, what i would be doing for the rest of my life
0: mm. I mean, quite literally, life-changing for her, right? And I suppose for you to be part of that at, you know, a relatively young age, and I suppose receiving the reward, you know, obviously there's there's no financial reward to be gained there, but purely just the reward of seeing another human being able to communicate, you know, all the joy that that's brought. It's clearly motivated to do you to do so many exciting things with healthcare and and this sector is so much better off for you having that experience, I think. So, yeah, I want to move on and, and talk about this first company, You know, the first medical company that you did. You, you could say this, you must have some sort of Midas touch for this to have been the first medical company that you did, although be it through um, a couple of failures, which again is a common story, obviously, in, in tech and entrepreneurship. But tell me more about how you started this company and what it was like in the early days um, when you were making this device.
1: So, so, this was um, in the late 70s, uh, I had not heard of uh, Venture Capital, and Dr. Mirowski, who's uh, reasonably well-connected, uh, but also didn't know anything about VC. And so, uh, he went around talking to corporations you know, to see if anybody would be interested in investing in this, in a, in a little startup. And there was one company in Pittsburgh that uh, uh, was run by a a physician. MD was the CEO. So he understood what what we were trying to do. uh, do. And uh, they invested a half a million dollars. And uh, that was the um, beginnings of the company. I was uh, maybe 24 years old at the time. You know, even uh, fairly inexperienced in business. And I didn't know at the time how, how inexperienced and, but I was fairly experienced in engineering and and, uh, anatomy and physiology. So it it was uh, my technical skills that that really helped me uh, bring together a very small engineering team. And we uh, uh, built that first device Uh, was um, the initial clinical study was done at Johns Hopkins. And uh, uh, the, um, uh, you know, we were the laughing stock of um, other med tech companies like uh, <laughs> uh, med- Medtronic engineers would look at this giant cigarette pack size uh, implant um, and uh, laugh at us when we would <laughs> go to the conferences, American College of Cardiology and Heart Association and so on. So it was, um, uh, what, what is interesting is that two years after we did the first implant, Medtronic jumped into the fray with their own um, defibrillator, which they, they said, you don't need 30 joules of energy. It could be done with a um, fraction of a joule. And so, it, and so they made a tiny defibrillator and of course it didn't work.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: you do need between 10 to 30 joules uh, to convert these arrhythmias with an internal electrode. Mm. Uh, and, um, so there were lawsuits flying around. And so it was a really an amazing time for me and uh, a, a, an amazing uh, view of business and, and large companies. Uh, Lily came in and made an investment. Um, uh, so I, it was in, uh, one of the most uh, uh, the biggest learning experiences in business that I've had because I saw so many aspects of mm. of business.
0: So did, I assume the company grew quite quickly then in that case.
1: Yeah, you know, the company actually remained fairly small. And as soon as we got uh, FDA approval in 85, Lilly bought the company. Okay. So we never got to commercialize it, but we did run the clinical trial and get, get the FDA approval. Mm. Um, and um, a few years later, Lilly spun out a company called Guidant. Um, and this became a, a big part of Guidant, mm-hmm. and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, later on, it, uh, Guidant was acquired by uh, Boston Scientific, so yeah, all that. part of Boston Scientific now. Uh, it was a six-year journey, and then I came to California and uh, uh, have been building a variety of companies uh, in different therapeutic areas. I, I also, um, built a couple of um, uh, security companies along the way just just for fun. Amazing. And you,
0: I mean, you've had, what, 20 odd device companies. Um, I read that you've got about 400 different patents. I mean, do you want to tell us a little bit more about a couple of the different companies? I mean, we probably haven't got time for all twenty, even though I'd I'd love to hear about them more. But I mean, you, you've had people acquire them left, right, and centre. You've had Metronic acquire things. You've had Abbott acquire things. Um, you've invented machines that I've used in my anaesthetic training. Um, so yeah, tell me about, a little bit about a couple of the different companies.
1: Well, um, uh, you know. One thing that you might be quite familiar with is uh, chronic pain management. And uh, uh, we created the uh, dorsal root ganglia stimulation uh, Mm. for the treatment of chronic pain. And uh, that was very successful. We got approval in Europe and U.S. and uh, was acquired by St. Jude Medical. But the story behind that, um, you know, really is... uh, Uh, fascinating Uh, you know i I read a lot of uh, medical literature and one of the things i kept noticing is that in the pain literature uh, the um, the whole um, spinal cord stimulation paradigm was uh, uh, was not a very clean paradigm you know you had uh, it was a therapy of last last resort and then um, you had to do a trial Uh, You put the leads in and you do a trial and then um, uh, maybe 50% of the patients or or so make it. Uh, uh, The ones that get the implant, a certain number drop out because they can't tolerate the paresthesias or the therapy is not very effective. Um, So reading all these things, I started thinking, you know, uh, there has to be a better solution than... Stimulating um, the uh, spinal cord, where it's a very non-specific, uh, non-targeted uh, uh, therapy. And and uh, in fact, one of the words that caught my attention was uh, you may you may be familiar with it. It's called trolling, um, <laughs> where where you pull the lead um, around, move it around to find the sweet spot. <laughs> another scientific term, sweet spot. Uh, because there was nothing better available, it was still growing at a double-digit rate and it was multi-billion-dollar industry. Yeah. So I started looking at uh, what made sense to me was going after the dorsal root ganglia. That's the only place in the body where you have sensory nerves by themselves mm. uh, and without the motor nerves being mixed up. And you could um, map each... Dermatome to a specific uh, DRG. And uh, that, um, I was convinced that that would be the best solution. And uh, I, you know, decided to start a company. I got it funded. Uh, We had uh, some of the big name funds like Kleiner Perkins came in in the first round. Um, And um, one of the first things I did was to go and recruit a scientific advisory board and I went to a pain conference and I had made an appointment with uh, Dr. Tim Deer, who was, I think at the time, president of the pain society of North America. Um, Really brilliant physician. And uh, um, uh, so he was giving a lecture at the time on the podium and I was waiting for him to finish his lecture to meet with him and in his lecture he was talking about uh, how you should, when you're putting the uh, uh, uh electrodes over the spinal cord to stay away from the gutters meaning uh, do- stay away from the dorsal root ganglia you might uh, you you're going likely to cause a lot of pain and uh, uh, that was one of the comments he was he made during his lecture um and when he was finished, I talked to him and he, I said, look, I, I don't know if it makes sense for us to have a conversation because I, I want to take you into the gutter with me. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that's where the, the I think the best pain relief is going to come from. So I described what we were thinking of doing. And uh, he was, uh, I, he didn't kick me out of there. He, very thoughtful and he uh, said, okay, I'll help you. Um, uh, and, uh, and the rest became history. We were able to recruit some of the top uh, pain physicians and neurosurgeons um, uh, to our SAB and uh, ran a very successful uh, U- uh, European trial and U.S. trial. And the pain relief, the quality of pain relief was an absolutely amazing what patients reported, and uh, uh, and the success rate was incredibly high. In fact, is several of the uh, uh, centers in Europe um, stopped doing the um, trial uh, period and trial lead. They would just go uh, place the lead, you know, test the pay, you know during the uh, procedure or after the uh, shortly after the procedure, and they would get you know, close to 100% success rate. So it was a pretty remarkable therapy and I'm so, so pleased that it has worked out for the patients. And I'm curious,
0: because I imagine going to a pain conference and trying to tell pain physicians that you're going to try something that's new, but perhaps, you know, they could have thought of, I mean, everybody in medicine knows that the dorsal root ganglion exists. Everybody knows the cells that comprise it, but you know, you Mm -hmm. being the first person to actually start saying to them, well, how about we block pain here? I imagine i mean i'm i'm hypothesizing here but i i imagine that the the reception from tim was was not that that you got from most other doctors
1: yeah I, you know i i think um, I, look i i had also um uh had a you know by the time i started this company i had a lot of gray hair or um, <laughs> and, um, i had a few successful entities so people generally uh uh, you know, at least maybe they were being polite, um, at least listen and uh, but you know at the end of the day what convinces uh, scientists and physicians alike uh, is data Yeah, and uh, one of the first things we did was um, generate human data and, and because they, there was not a good animal model for pain, for chronic pain mm-hmm. and that was one of the challenges, right? So we could do the animal studies to demonstrate safety. And, and you know, uh, we did a bunch of cadaver studies to develop the uh, lead, you know, deploying the lead into the foramen, uh, the tools and, and the procedure. So it, there was still a lot of work ahead of us that we had to do. And so... I
0: mean, I could talk to you all day about this and and more anesthetic um, machines, but you
1: invented the BIS monitor. Is that correct? Uh, So we had developed, um, uh, this is back, I'm taking you back to the early 90s. Uh, In fact, 1990, I started a company called Physiometrics. Mm. Uh, And we developed this uh, um, uh, depth of anesthesia monitoring system. And it took basically some um, uh, uh, some EEG channels and other physiologic parameters, uh, heart rate, muscle tone, and, and whatnot, respiration, and uh, uh, and we went through algorithms and created a an index of uh, um, uh, anesthesia. To, to provide to the anesthesiologist some feedback on how deep the, the, that particular patient was and, and uh, the patient themselves become the control the way we, we initially worked on it uh, so that once you got them into the right um, anesthesia plane, you could then watch the index to uh, get some feedback on how to uh, whether to increase or decrease the uh, different um, uh, uh, anesthetics and, and, uh, um, uh, that were, that were given during the, uh, uh, during the surgery. So it was, uh, uh, it was well received, but you know, it was, I hate, there was a mixed reception. We had uh, good, um, acceptance from younger physicians, but the old timers <laughs> said, um, you know, I, I know how, how to do this. I don't need any instrument to tell me how deep the end is. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I have to say it wasn't uh, uh, as universally accepted as I would have liked. Uh, mm. but, uh, uh, what What's your view of how, how was your experience with it? Well, when I was
0: training in anesthetics, um, i guess similar to your findings were that some of the consultants that were training me loved it others just wouldn't go near it so as you've said as well with innovation it tends to be the younger consultants the the, certain of those that are particularly pioneering or particularly open to trying new things you know the essentially the innovators and early adopters of that group were the people that took on the bis monitoring um and i guess you know my my experience of it was that the consultants that used it they loved it simply because they could have a quantified number for how deep an anesthetic was, which for the surgeries that those, that those particular consultants were doing, it was really useful for them as a sort of a defensive medicine, um, bit of data because as you say you know the, the the one of the best things in medicine is indeed data so for them to have a, a quantified figure along with everything else that sort of backs up how deep an anesthetic was was incredibly useful for them
1: yeah yeah no i i i think that's uh you know um uh one of the um other areas that i i worked on where did some early pioneering work was in um, endocardial mapping and ablation of uh, cardiac arrhythmias. Uh, mm. So having done implantable defibrillator, which was you know treatment for an arrhythmia after it started. Uh, we were then uh, going after the same ventricular arrhythmias and then ultimately atrial uh, uh, fibrillation with uh, uh, actually ablating the cardiac tissue to stop the arrhythmia to, to um, uh, as a curative procedure and that was uh, a very complex uh, undertaking because uh, you know, our understanding of cardiac arrhythmias was not very robust as as it is today and um, so we were not only developing the tools to do these ablations and we were mapping mapping tools as well. Uh, we were also gaining a better understanding of how these arrhythmias uh, behaved around, uh, let's say an ischemic zone and how the uh, uh, re-entry pathways worked. Uh, so it was a lot of uh, time for discovery as well as uh, innovation. Mm. Uh, so uh, I, I really enjoyed that. It was, the complexity was quite... Uh, Quite impressive. You're a born problem solver, aren't you? Because I, 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 to me, it's just intellectually, it's a challenge, and it's uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, more fun to be working on things that are uh, that have that people haven't figured out, or have failed at, or or the current um, standard of care is not uh, up to par. I just want to move us on then to
0: one of your more recent companies. And this one is really fascinating. I actually was doing some research before this call and I stumbled upon a story whereby you had a particularly spicy Indian dinner and ended up founding a company about a new type of pill. I'll leave it there, but why don't you flesh that out
1: and and tell us a bit more? Sure. So that uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of uh, complicated and crazy things. This is probably the <laughs> most complex uh, undertaking of my career. Um, and uh, so, you know, about, I'll take you back about maybe eight years or eight, nine years ago. Um, uh, I was talking to some folks uh, from a pharma company and just a casual social conversation. And they mentioned that. They had made an investment in uh, a company biotech company that was trying to convert uh, a a particular peptide uh, protein peptide based drug Uh, i think it was uh, parathyroid hormone pth or or something like that um i don't recall exactly which molecule but uh, they said that the company had just failed and they were they uh, had shut it down so I, i you know my um interest peaked there and i said well, why did it fail what were they doing and uh this is why you know people have been trying to convert these protein-based drugs into pills for 50 years and um haven't succeeded and there have been you know at least 100 150 separate attempts made but if it could be done it would be it would have a profound impact on millions of patients and maybe um, Uh, tens of millions of patients. So I started thinking about it and and, uh, did a little more digging. And I realized that all the prior attempts were chemistry-based and they were essentially trying to uh, uh, block the enzymes locally where in the intestine, where the uh, uh, pill was dissolving and to block those enzymes long enough for the drug to be absorbed. And so as a result, they were getting, you know, sub 1% bioavailability. So that was the backdrop to, um, that led me to this thinking that perhaps uh, rather than fight the battle with uh, uh, enzymes and proteases that are going to chew up the drug and digest it, uh, why not inject it into the intestinal wall? And w- w- knowing that the intestines don't have the same kind of pain receptors that our skin does, uh, that would be most likely a pain free injection and uh, so so create a pill that the patient swallows, it goes into the intestine, transforms itself into an injection, and delivers a pain free injection. That was the hypothesis I had no idea how I was going to do that, and the the different aspects of that uh, you know how do you inject what kind of needle do you use um, uh, how much drug can you put in where do you put the drug how do you push the needle into the intestinal wall and and, and so on so i the the incident you alluded to uh, about the spicy indian meal uh, really um, uh, actually did happen <laughs> because one of the things that i had, i was stumped i was uh, uh, it was challenging was how do I push? You know, I have this capsule in the intestine, if you can imagine, and it needs to generate a force to push the needle into the intestinal wall.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: and it needs to line up the um, tiny syringe perpendicular to the intestinal wall. So it had to align the, the thing and and uh, deliver the injection. So that was, uh, uh, I, could, I was thinking of uh, springs and levers and... And I was you know I quickly decided not to pursue those uh, because I felt that the springs and levers were not um, suitable for a swallowable device you know in case those things came came out or or popped out it wouldn't be it would be bad for the patient so um, I decided to use a, a, a so, so let me, let me actually back off. So uh, I had actually put the project on the shelf. I didn't know how to solve that problem. And, but it was always in the back of my mind. And one day after, you know, I had some heartburn around midnight after a particularly spicy uh, meal. And uh, I was, I put a couple of, uh, Alka Seltzer in a cup of water, and I was staring down at the bubbles, um, and I, I realized that that could be a very safe and effective uh, source of force or power to push the needle into the intestinal wall. So the I, what I came up with was a self-inflating balloon, uh, where inside the balloon uh, the the two ingredients in uh, um, you know in uh, alka like uh, citric or acetic acid and uh, sodium bicarb, uh, are separated by a dissolvable pinch valve. And so uh, the balloon is folded up and and the uh, micro syringes is attached to the balloon. So all that is folded up into a capsule, but and when when the uh, outer shell dissolves and the the valve pinch valve is exposed to. Intestinal fluids. The reaction takes place, produces carbon dioxide, and and um, uh, inflates the balloon to a very precise pressure because we have uh, appropriate molar quantities of these two reactants, and um, and it uh, and the balloon uh, uh, as it inflates aligns the uh, syringe to the intestinal wall and delivers a pain-free injection. So it's. Uh, uh, and we've been testing it in uh, large animals for a long time, um, for five, six years. And we, have, we did a human study last year to, um, you know, without a needle. Um, the first step was to sort of make sure that uh, it was safe to swallow and the, the balloon inflation and deflation worked as, uh, as uh, we designed, as, was, as it performed in dogs. And uh, so that study was really quite successful. We demonstrated that uh, the patients actually did not feel any sensation that the balloon in, in, inflated and deflated. So um, uh, now, uh, you know, and I have taken, for, for for instance, I have personally taken maybe about 17, 18 capsules so far. And um, I absolutely have not felt anything um, any sensation. So I, I'm, I'm actually cautiously optimistic for the future of this uh, technology. We think uh, it's going to work in, in, uh, uh, in humans and it's capable of delir- delivering a number of drugs like uh, insulin, GLP-1, the diabetes drugs, um, uh, uh, parathyroid hormone, PTH for bone growth, human growth hormone, uh, uh, Humira or TNF-alpha inhibitors, antibodies such as Humira and Embryl, um, uh, a number of uh, interleukin antibodies, uh, uh, and uh, interferon beta-1A for multiple sclerosis. And the list goes on for, I think, 18, 20 different drugs we can deliver. Um, and we have demonstrated, I think we've so far, delivered in animal models, about nine or ten drugs, and it's very effective. It, it's pain-free and it's safe. Um, we've done, I think, we've delivered more than a thousand capsules in, in animal models, and the PK profiles are are very uh, good. Bioavailability is equal to or better than a subcutaneous injection, uh, which is. Uh, Pretty remarkable and uh, uh, we have a uh, uh, collaboration with Novartis and uh, uh, Shire, which is now Takeda. Um, and we have brought in uh, half a dozen molecules that are off patent for uh, development as oral um, formulations with our with the Rani pill and uh, we are working on that and the first of those molecules will be tested in the next few months um, and we're very excited about that and test tested in humans.
0: Wow I mean the potential is enormous I mean the amount of drugs that you just mentioned there that can be delivered this way and even the fact that you said you know the, the bioavailability so I guess for those that aren't medically or scientific it's one way of explaining it, I guess, quite simply, is just how effective it can be. It's as good as as injecting under the skin. I mean, for a painless way of delivering drugs, um, as I say, the the potential is absolutely enormous. So I imagine there's quite a few, as you mentioned, you know, the likes of Novartis and Takeda that are that are looking at you and interested.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I, you're right. The the, enorm- the the I mean, from a patient perspective, it's not just the um, um, that the fact that it's painless, but it will improve uh, compliance. And we, we there is a lot of published literature on oral medication, the compliance for oral medications, and compliance in injectables, self-injected uh, medications. You know, there's a um, uh, Thirty percent, thirty-five percent lower compliance for uh, self-injecting than for pills. So we think that just turning it into a pill, uh, let's say an insulin or GLP-1, people will take it, um, um, uh, you know, as more, more closer to uh, uh, the prescribed uh, frequency, and uh, it, that has an impact. On um, uh, on the progression of the disease, you know, slowing down the progression of the disease, and uh, we think that it'll have an impact on hundreds of millions of patients worldwide. You know, I mean, just in diabetes, there are a couple of hundred, two, three, four hundred million people worldwide who mm. uh, have diabetes. One of the other advantages, if you think about it, is for diabetics, you could potentially start uh, diabetics on basal insulin several years before they, they currently do. Uh, and the reason they wait so long is because of the stigma attached to, to injections. And so they, they keep delaying it until it becomes absolutely essential. But I believe that if, if they could prescribe uh, basal insulin earlier, uh, it would actually delay the um, uh, inevitable uh, you know, uh, destruction of the pancreas. Mm. So, uh, so you could potentially um, put off or or slow down, dramatically slow down the progress of the disease.
0: Yeah. And changing the treatment plans for quite a lot of conditions um, very quickly, I imagine as well. Um, I mean, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, you are the, quite proficient at thinking of problems to solve and and in the medical sphere and and solving those medical devices. So, I mean, it's only natural then that you've got um, now, uh, you know, you've got an applied research institute, you've got a venture fund where you look for other medical devices. Um, Talk me through how you got to a point where I guess you're scaling yourself almost through those through those mechanisms.
1: Yeah, so so you know, back in '95, about 25 years ago, I realized that I, I realized that uh, I was working on uh, going to be working on a lot of complex problems in chemistry and biology and cell biology, and so I decided to set up a research institute or research lab uh, in 1995. It's called Incube Labs, um, and. Uh, it it serves as a research platform for uh, new um, problems that we are exploring, and and uh, some of those uh, the solutions uh, uh, turn into companies. And you know the one the Rani uh, uh, Therapeutics that I just described was uh, born in at Incube Labs, and you know, we we did some early bench work and and animal studies took two years to sort of figure out, figure out the technology, and then we formed the company. So uh, it becomes a really um, good platform. We have 150 people in in Incube Labs. And then uh, about I would say eight, nine years ago, um, we started a venture capital fund called Incube Ventures. It's a separate entity. And uh, the charter of this fund is to invest in uh, both uh, companies coming out of incube labs as well as external entrepreneurs who uh, are are bringing those com- uh, their own companies forward so we get more than a thousand business plans a year and we from outside and we might we select one or two to invest in and and uh, we look at uh, the companies coming out of incube labs and uh, we have uh, um, the ability to invest in in Cube Labs company. So, uh, the fund has uh, is on its, we are on a, the third fund, and we're uh, uh, very, very uh, excited about our ability to help uh, uh, new entrepreneurs uh, uh, who are looking for funding. I mean, besides putting money in, we bring our considerable expertise and experience uh, in building life science companies to to our investee companies so it's a it's a good um, natural mix of uh, our work from our own work in starting companies and helping others who are building companies
0: and what are you looking for in those business plans and teams that approach you i mean you as you say you get a thousand plus of these coming through and you know, you're, you're obviously looking for the, for the next unicorns and things as are anybody else with, with the venture fund. Um, but what specifically are you looking for with the remit of the fund and also, you know, with your experience of, of building companies yourself, what are you looking for in those entrepreneurs and those teams and indeed those products?
1: Yeah. So that, that's a great question. So, you know, I've, uh, Developed a, a um, criteria for for the kinds of problems we uh, we like and we, we like to build solutions for, and the characteristics of those problems. So we want to be uh, ha- be disruptive. We want to solve big problems. This is all my work in Incub Labs and and prior to Incube Labs, and we apply the same yardstick to the business plans we receive that they should really be focused on solving a big medical need that has the potential of dramatically improving patient outcomes. And uh, so that's sort of the, um, the yardstick we use uh, for, for measuring Mm the uh, business plans. And, you know, we also look at uh, the team, you know, who comes to us, the the entrepreneur and uh, the management team. uh, you know, sometimes um, it's a brilliant uh, uh, scientist who starts a company and we, we might uh, uh, support that and help uh, put together a management team. Uh, and sometimes the management team is already in place. And we, we, uh, we have, uh, because of my long tenure, of 40 plus years in this business, I have a lot of um, Relationships and and know a lot of people, so that helps in sort of identifying the the teams um, uh, and uh, that are that are likely to be successful. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that my relationships with large large med tech and pharma companies also helps our investee companies because we can um, help in corporate partnering strategy. Uh, and and help with introductions to the right companies. So uh, there is a, a lot of effort that goes into building these companies, and uh, we bring to bear all our um, years of experience, and and um, especially all the failures we have. And uh, I have, you know, I've had in my own work uh, that helps me hopefully avoid uh, the same failures in the future. Mm-hmm. And as
0: as an investor, both both an angel and a a venture capitalist, um, I heard a great phrase the other day that it's these types of investors that actually choose the world that we're living in next. Um, and it's very true. I mean, you know, even us as mm-hmm. HS with our, with our accelerator and and the fund that we're raising, you know, we hope to do exactly that. We hope to really be choosing things that really fit our vision for what the future of healthcare and, you know, digital health uh, really is. Um, and it is a, you know, it's a really privileged position to be in. It's a, it's a great position to be in. It's a fun position to be in. And I guess what I'd like to know from you from, from the medical device sector with what you see with the deal flow that you see and, and um, with your experience in the area, I mean, what do you see as the, the future of the sector? What do you see trends as, you know, in, in the medical device region, you know, are devices attacking a particular clinical area, particularly are there particular technologies that are coming through, you know, how do you see the future of the medical device sector?
1: So, so, you know, I think uh, there are different uh, areas in medical devices that are, that are growing at different rates. Uh, you know, robotics is, uh, is continuing to become a big part of uh, medical devices, especially in surgery. Um, and uh, neuromodulation is, is, uh, continues to expand its horizons in what kinds of diseases can be treated, and people are trying all sorts of things. In in my lab we have uh, at least three different um, uh, projects. One of those has turned into a company um, already in neuromodulation. They're all in neuromodulation, and the other uh, is you know drug-device combinations, where we have just talked about Rani. Rani. That's another big area of targeted drug delivery or. Um, uh, you know, CNS delivery is, is, uh, is a, uh, a big challenge, especially as uh, pharma companies focus on um, Alzheimer's and, and some of these debilitating neurologic uh, degenerative diseases. Uh, how do you deliver um, large molecules, for example, in, into the brain? So there are so many unsolved problems or poorly understood problems that there's ample opportunity for entrepreneurs to um, focus on on um, on these things so i think drug, drug delivery um, you neuromodulation know, uh, surgery um, uh, and and then um, you know you, you you have to also look at uh, the wireless technologies and digital health and integrating that in, into drug delivery, into neuromodulation, into surgery, and and those things by themselves, uh, as as a way of monitoring the progress of the chronic disease. I mean, this is all going to be critical, and uh, 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 you know, there are other areas, of course. You know, cell-based therapies and and CRISPR, and uh, you know. Uh, Tissue-engineered uh, solutions—the uh, the list is unending in in terms of how. Uh, I mean, yesterday I saw a, um, a business plan for a uh, for a stent graft. Um, I met the entrepreneur who's uh, quite experienced, and so so there are always going to be companies that are improving existing technologies. But uh, uh, I think the digital uh, Healthcare revolution. In fact, one of them is is going to touch everybody, I think, at at every level. Uh, One of the uh, solutions we are building, a neuromodulation solution, um, incorporates uh, the um, uh, wireless and sensors and uh, providing feedback to the patient and and to the physician. The Rani pill, for example, also we can put in a wireless sensor that connects the pill through your phone to the cloud so that uh, we can record the exact date and time when you took the pill Mm -hmm. uh, or or to remind you when when you didn't take, when you skipped the pill. So uh, This is um, uh, digital and wireless technologies and sensors going are going to be ubiquitous they are not going to be sort of little uh, separate things they will find their way into everything we do
0: i think you're right we've gone past the the question of if haven't we we're, we're now at the question of when and as you say all of these things are not only being researched and developed that you know they're, they're finding their ways to market now there's acquisitions there's all these things taking place that that's really as you say bringing the digital element um ubiquitous across all across all devices so it's extremely important and i think one of the thing that one of the things that i liked a lot there was that when you started that answer you you brought this back to at the end of the day you just need to solve a problem and i think you started by saying there are so many problems still left to solve and that's i think incredibly good advice for you know any entrepreneur is to is despite how um, experienced you might be in in engineering be that electronical or biomedical or otherwise still start with the problem i think it's interesting for us at hs actually you know we see a lot of domain experts coming to us wanting to start companies the clinicians you know the nurses the doctors the the dietitians, the physiotherapists and they are very problem focused but they often lack the ability to See the world through an engineer 's eyes, and similarly you know we, we see a lot of engineers that lack the ability to see the world through a clinician 's eyes and and, and they they 're often too technology focused but it seems to me that if there 's ever an advertisement for doing engineering and then doing medicine and getting the best of both worlds it 's yourself because the way you look at things is. To, to analyze the problem that needs solving. And then you've got this wonderful gift from your engineering um, life where you can actually visualize what a solution might look like. And I love that you can bench things in the back of your mind for, for these light bulb moments. It, just, it reminds me of just like an episode of house or something where he's having a random conversation. All of a sudden he'll pull uh, some relevance from, from a random conversation to then, to then end up figuring out how to solve a problem. I mean, it's wonderful i mean i've 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 thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and and I'd, i'd love to hear more about many many more of your companies and i think i will be back in touch to to certainly do that
1: thanks for for those comments and i think you i mean this this is my um mantra that it's all about the problem you know you need to focus on understanding the problem and the solution emerges from that understanding but yeah, I wanted to ask you. You know, you're doing some amazing things with your venture fund and the the uh, the incubator that you have. Um, uh, are you having fun with it? It's so much fun. It's so much fun. You know, it's like the
0: question I asked you about the the, the views that you get of the future and things. You know, we the th- the things that come through the the opportunity to help these people that are really doing this groundbreaking stuff and groundbreaking, pioneering. You know, these words get thrown around so much, but you know some of the pitch decks that that we get of the the technology being used when it's a, when it's actually applied to to a problem that that we know and that we see. You know you can just sort of visualize a future of problems being solved, and I think that that's super fascinating. You know there's there's so much negativity in 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 the news and the media and all these different things, and particularly in the UK when you hear about the NHS being underfunded and and, and it doesn't treat its staff properly and like all these different things, but it's it's one of those that it sort of backs up the reason that I actually got into this, which was that I, you know, I wanted to scale my own impact. I wanted to break through the ceiling of only seeing so many patients a day and actually going, well, how do I transfer this knowledge that I've got about startups and this ability to you know help entrepreneurs and how do I scale it into something that can significantly affect more people than I can as a doctor. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it's been, it's been an incredible journey for me you know, this is my second accelerator that, that I'm running now where, you know, as you say, you know, raising the venture fund and things like that. And, you know, you can really, you can really see the impact now. You know, some of our startups are raising big money. They're impacting lots and lots of patients with big contracts and multiple contracts and, you know, bringing technology to the forefront. It's, 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 it's so much fun. You and I should collaborate on some projects. I think we should. I think wouldn't, wouldn't that be fun? Um, well, let's, let's certainly have a conversation about a few problems that need solving and uh we'll, we'll have a beer and uh yeah we'll, we'll start we'll start something why not um mir the way that we end these podcasts is um we hand back over to you and i'd actually like to change this up a little bit this week i'd just like to hand back over to you to just speak to our audience of entrepreneurs and just give us give give us all a bit of advice for 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 the entrepreneurs listening
1: well you know i i think um what um, defined my career, uh, and, and I wasn't uh, by design, it was just uh, accidentally, is the, is the fact that I worked on a really important problem in my first company, which was uh, uh, treating sudden cardiac death with, with an implantable defibrillator. That um, uh, launched my career, and that gave me insights into big problems and, and the characteristics of big problems. I, so my p- advice to you, uh, to the entrepreneurs, are is don't be afraid of uh, tackling the biggest problems. You know, of course, provided that you have the requisite background uh, for those specific problems, but go after the big unsolved mysteries and small incremental innovations in, in uh, existing products are fine, but those are best left to large companies. Um, but just be... Uh, looking at uh, patient outcomes. Uh, So, you know, one yardstick I use is what I'm going to do is, is it going to dramatically improve patient outcomes? By that, I mean 50%, 100%, 200% improvement in patient outcomes. If the answer is uh, no, it might uh, be the same or, uh, uh, you know, for instance, if you come up with another coronary stent, when stents have, um, restenosis rates of 5 or 6%, that's going to be a tough thing for a little company to to show equivalence to existing technology. So looking for big problems is really the way to go. And, and uh, it, it's the same amount of work, whether you're building a company that is improving, uh, coming up with a small improvement to an existing thing versus something that is disruptive from an effort standpoint. It's the same amount of effort, but there's so much more reward to see dramatic improvement in patient outcomes. What a fantastic message.
0: Um, Mayor, this has been an absolute pleasure um, for me. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for, for having me and I look forward to the next conversation.